after all the, the kiddos leave, let's just bow in prayer as we begin looking at God's word again this morning. Dear Lord, we just uh, thank you for what you've done as we sing that last song, Behold Our God. God, you are amazing. You are beyond anything, and uh, it's you who we praise. This morning as we look at these words that you've recorded, kind of telling about the lives of two different men, Father, we just ask that you'd be working in our spirits, working in us, that as we see what you've done in them, that you'll be doing the same in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 9, verses 1 through 20, it's very, very similar to what uh, Brad read earlier, but first we're going to turn to North Korea. We've got to go a little ways away from Acts 9 to begin what we're talking about today. I think most of us know the name of King Jong-un, not King, King, Kim, if I could even say it, Kim Jong-un, but he's the dictator there in North Korea. If you've watched the news recently, he's been talking with Trump, talking with people in China. He's been on the news a lot. What we may be less familiar with is how Christians are treated in North Korea. What do they do with people in that country? Well, for more than 60 years, there's an organization called Open Doors, and they've been not just monitoring prosecuted church, persecuted church, but they're looking to see how they can help them out. But with that, they keep an eye on what's going on, what the countries are doing, what the, uh, the government's doing. They've got a whole list of different ways that they kind of calculate how is the church being treated. And there's over 65 countries where persecution is just horrendous, but there's only 50 in their top list, 50 where the persecution is something you would not want to have to live with. There's probably uh, 215 million Christians around the world that are in a category of high, very high, or even extreme levels of persecution. That means that one in 12 Christians live where Christianity is illegal, it's forbidden, and it's even punished. Well, for 17 years in a row now, North Korea has been at the top of that list. A lot of times you think of other countries, they're like, oh, Iran's probably up there, Iraq, Syria's probably way high up there, maybe Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan actually moved up to number two after being number five for years. But North Korea, 17 years in a row, the number one spot. With more than 50,000 people there in prison because of Christianity or in labor camps, such a ranking really is little surprise. It's a totalitarian regime. You don't know what's going to happen until Kim Jong-un says it's going to happen. Even in the news just uh, two days ago, one of his high officials gave out extra bread, extra fuel to some of his People underneath him, he had him beheaded. He had him killed, wiped out, because he wasn't uh, following the, the policy, the line to only worship Kim Jong-un. So that just gives you a little taste of what's going on with believers in that country. When we see a man like that, with that abuse of power, um, especially against Christianity, I normally have thoughts that come to mind that may not be the right thoughts. There's no chance of salvation for that guy. Anybody have thought of that, maybe? Or I can't wait to see what God's going to do to punish him. You see these things, and we like wonder, what's going to happen? Is that true for any of you, or is that just me? I see some heads. That's good, good. His actions against God, man, his hostility toward believers, it just seems like something needs to happen. But that really sounds like another man we know. We've talked about him here in the book of Acts already. His name is Saul. And if you don't know him already, we're going to spend some time here looking at him. But he led Israel to be the number one nation on the New Testament world watch list for the persecuted church. He was the man who made this happen. But as we see here in the book of Acts, God had other plans. 
Turn with me to the book of Acts here, if you haven't already. Chapter 9. We're going to look at two very different men in this passage. One, Saul, who was out to eliminate the church, get rid of them altogether. And another, Ananias, who was called by God to show mercy on his greatest enemy. Now, the book of Acts here, it's such a wonderful story of God's sovereign work in the life of his church. If you notice, we're turning to chapter 9. So all sorts of things have already happened in this book. It's not just the history. Sometimes we think of it as a history lesson. Oh, yeah, we'll look back there. This happened, that happened. It's really chronological, so we know what's going on. But it's not only that. It's really showing what God is doing. Every step of this chronology shows how God was involved with the people, with his church. Luke, the writer of this, he was a companion of the apostles. He went with them. He surveyed what they were doing. And this is actually his second book that he's written. Luke, you may have known, he, he has another book. What book is that? Anyone? Luke. Oh, there you go. So he wrote Luke as well. And he wrote it specifically so that he had compiled from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word so that there is a certainty to what you believe. And truth, um, the truth here is that Luke does that in all he records, whether it be in his own book or here in the book of Acts. This is just a continuation of that, written to the same man, so that there is certainty of what he is recording. Well, our Friday night lessons with youth group, we've been talking about the uh, idea of doctrine, of sound doctrine. We started through that in the year, but as we go through the book of Acts, it really shows how things were taught through. And we've been studying this book and seeing how God's sovereign hand is in each step of the church's development. Beginning in chapter 1, the apostles are wondering, what is God's plan? What are we doing here? What's going to go on here? God's, Christ has ascended into heaven. What are we supposed to do? And actually, in uh, Acts 1, verses 7 to 8, they said, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus replies to them, no, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power by the Holy Spirit when he has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that is what the disciples were now expecting. There's something different. There wasn't the nation of Israel that was going to be restored that they had hoped for. But no, these men are supposed to be witnesses and spread out, not only from where they're at in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And as we go through the book of Acts, that's just what God designed. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, you may know, at the, the day of Pentecost. The disciples were witnesses of God's work. They spoke his word. And that first day, over 3,000 came to know Christ and uh, it says, they're just incredible church growth. After that, it says the Lord was adding to their number every day. In uh, chapter 2, you can see that. It was probably a couple of weeks then to the next time. They were up to 5,000. And that's not including women and children. I mean, this is just crazy how this is growing. From the apostles teaching, there were 120 apostles in the room when the Holy Spirit came. And now over 5,000 that are on the books, on the record of those who are, have called themselves members of this church. All these changed lives, especially in Jewish families, it was not well-liked by the established spiritual authorities. You know, they were trying to figure out how to make this stop. It's like you've got a leaky faucet, and it just keeps going and keeps going. All of a sudden, it's on all the way, and all your water is gone. That's what they were feeling like. What are we supposed to do? So imagine if you go to the Louvre in France. They have over 8 million people that come there every year. And some insignificant artist sets up across the river, and all of a sudden, all those people from the Louvre, they see what he's got and are coming over there. And little by little, it starts as a trickle, but 
boom, they're, they're getting their numbers cut into. And not only that, these guys never go back to the Louvre, and uh, their profits are, are a huge issue. The Louvre would do whatever they could to try to prevent this. You know, here we've got publications, we've got TV shows, we've got defamation ads. It's sort of like a political campaign. But uh, they would do what they can. That's kind of like these guys in the synagogue. They're like, what are we going to do? They were uh, thinking, one day, their synagogue's full. Here we're, f- we're full of people coming to worship God. The next day, thousands are meeting in their homes. They're worshiping together. They're breaking bread. They're sharing all of their things. And they have no plans of coming back. They've been changed. Their lives have been changed. Acts 5.17 says that the high priest and those who were with him, they were filled with jealousy. God was building his church. And at the moment, it didn't include the Pharisees. It didn't include the Sadducees. It didn't include the high priest. And they were a little miffed by what was happening here. Well, they needed someone who was prepared to lead the way, to take definitive action against this group of dissenters. You know, their eyes were leaving the synagogue to follow just another insignificant man. There are all these people. Who's this Jesus Christ? He is nobody, according to the Pharisees, and yet everybody's flocking to follow him. Well, that someone that they found was Saul. We first find Saul in chapter 7, just a couple pages before where we're going to be today. He's looking over a bunch of cloaks, standing off to the side, while a man is stoned to death. That man, Stephen, he had preached the word of God. He had proclaimed Christ. And all Saul wanted to do was to see him die. And he stands there and looks over the cloaks. But Stephen, a few of his last words were, Behold, I see the heavens open, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. After that, it didn't, that didn't phase Saul. It says, Saul approved of his execution, chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That kind of leads us up here to where we're at today. A couple things happened there between Saul ravaging the church and the scattering There was an Ethiopian man who was saved by another evangelist, Philip, and there were others who were being preached to, and the gospel was spreading around all this area, but Saul was not happy. He was not a happy man. Look here at verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was on a mission, and his mission was to glorify Israel and their leadership and what they were doing. He wanted nothing to do with this group that was called the way. He didn't want them leading the way anymore. He was tired of these guys. And so he's, it says they're breathing out threats and murder. It's Almost an idiom saying that all of his threats would lead to murder as he talks to these people. He wasn't just content threatening them. His words had actions behind them. As we keep looking here, he's gonna, he wants to do it to the disciples. When you first read that, sometimes it's like, well, that's 12 guys. It's not going to be, be much. But disciples doesn't just refer to 12 men. It's referring to all those who are following Christ. And at this moment, over 5,000 men and women, actually more now that they've scattered and gone to these other cities. Now these other cities are being reached. It sounds like almost what Christ said was going to happen. You'll be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Already 
their witness in Judea, Jerusalem. Now they've been scattered. They're in Judea and Samaria. And what God has said is continuing to happen. Saul doesn't seem to have a, a clue on those ideas. He is thinking, this is not what God wants. This is not what God would want for his people. We need to squelch this. And uh, Saul wanted everyone he could lay his hands on. Twelve guys was not good enough. We need everybody. So he talks to the high priest. In his capacity in the Sanhedrin, the high priest was really viewed by the Romans and the Jews as the leader of all the internal affairs for the church, or not the church, but Israel, for the Jewish people. And this was a matter for the Jewish people. It had to do with who they followed, how they worshipped, where they worshipped, who their allegiances were to. And at this moment, the allegiances weren't to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Instead, they were following what's called the way, anyone belonging to the way, the way, what an excellent name for Christianity. It's the way of God. It's the way into his holy place. It's the way of truth. The description of the way, it appears several times here in the book of Acts to describe how the people were following God. It apparently would come from what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It wasn't through the Pharisees. It wasn't through the scribes, the Sadducees, what they were doing. It was through Jesus Christ. And they knew that. So that's why they were given this name, the way. Let's continue here in verse 3 as we see what Saul does to these people. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Oh, wait, he doesn't quite get there to do this to these people. It says, And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Man, to think, here you are, you've just got your trip all scheduled out, and you have a major interruption. Not only is it unexpected, but it's the last person you'd ever want to interrupt your trip as you're going to wipe out the church. God had one plan, the church had another. Saul's only thought on his way to Damascus was, how many believers can I round up? How many people can I put in prison? How can I destroy these families? How can I destroy the church? He couldn't wait to silence the group the way. Persecuting Christians consumed him. That's all he was about. It had become his whole life. But God had other plans. God comes in and says, Saul, Saul. That's a rebuke to Saul. He was the one who hated Jesus Christ without a cause. He was the one who was persecuting Christians. Saul inflicted blows, not just to these people, but directly to our Lord. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had been so violent. He had injured so many people. He had put them in prison. But then he was brought face to face with the enormity of his crimes, not against Christians, but against Christ. One moment, he's skipping along the road. The next moment, he's on his knees in front of his Savior, the one who he was persecuting. It was his worst imaginable nightmare. Who would have, he'd have to discover that Jesus really is the Messiah, that Christianity is true, that gospel is God's truth. And he had been fighting God. That would be quite a slap in the face. And it was. He uh, ended up not being able to see as a result of what God had done. But those who traveled with Saul, they heard him. They heard this noise, but they didn't know what it said. They saw the light, but didn't see Jesus. The Lord's message was for Saul's ears only. And Saul actually saw Jesus, the righteous one. As he repeatedly testifies, we saw in Acts uh, 26, Acts 22 talks about it. First Corinthians, whenever Saul, Saul tells about his testimony, he tells about seeing Christ seated 
by God at the right hand. Those traveling with him, his co-tormentors, they only saw the light. They didn't see the truth that was in the light. Ironically, the last person to have seen the resurrected, glorified Christ was Stephen, the same man who Saul came over, stood by the robes while he watched him get killed. Now, here, the next person we have recorded to see Christ is Saul himself, the persecutor, the one who was the killer. Saul was eager to see death. It's such an interesting connection between the ministry of Stephen and Saul. It's a testimony to the power of God that the man involved in Stephen's death, Stephen, who was only wanting to proclaim life to these people, would be the next one to see Christ risen. Saul, seeing a risen Christ at the throne, just as we sang, behold our God, seated at his throne. Boy, Jesus, whom he believed dead, was obviously alive. There was no doubt to it. It was obviously who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Something changed in the life of Saul, Saul at that moment. He realized, what am I doing? I am not following God in any way, shape, or form. It's a conversion, a miraculous conversion. Without human involvement in its occurrence, God was there. It's an example to the extent of the power and saving grace of God as he works in this man. In Paul's letter to Timothy, sometimes his name is actually Saul now, but Paul later, in Saul's letter to Timothy, many years later, Saul tells us of God's work in his life. 1 Timothy 1, 13-17, it says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of kings, immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine going from wanting to kill, destroy, to being praising God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul? Well, the genuineness of Saul's conversion, it immediately became evident. From Acts 22.10, we learn that he asked, what shall I do, Lord? Not only responding to him, who are you, Lord? What shall I do? What actions do I need to take to follow you? Saul's surrender was complete as he humbly submitted himself to Christ and what he wanted. The Christ whom he hated, his life had changed to love. In contrast to the teachings of many today, Saul knew nothing about accepting Christ and then making him Lord of his life later. He accepted Christ, made him Lord and director, commander of everything that he did immediately. Romans 10, 9 through 10, we were talking about this in race. I, I heard uh, Joseph say one of our verses from race as well. I'm glad it affects not only us as leaders and the kids, but also those who are helping out. But in Romans 10, 9 through 10, we see that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth one confesses and with the heart one believes. And that's exactly what Saul was doing here. We don't see that for a moment. As we look at verse 8, it kind of continues the story. Saul rose from the ground. This is back in chapter 9. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That's about all we get about Saul right now. After this point, we change to another man, another man, Ananias. 
Now, this isn't Ananias and Sapphira because those two were killed in Acts 5. This is another Ananias in the church that God is using for another purpose. Very different man from Saul. He was already a believer, and he was ready to be used by God. Acts, later, chapter 22, when Saul is talking about Ananias, he describes him as a devout and well-spoken of by all the Jews who lived. He was likely one of the spiritual leaders of the Damascus church. He was probably one of Saul's main targets. Think about that as we look here at verse 10 of Acts 9. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. If you were to hear that news... Kim Jong-un is just coming over to your house. I want you to go and help him out. What, what would your response normally be? Probably, no, I don't, that's not a good idea. Not going to happen. I've been serving at this church. I'm helping here. I've got responsibilities. I'm not going to go. But uh, Ananias had the appropriate response as he starts out. Here I am, Lord. What a great way to respond to the Lord of salvation. As you think through your Old Testament history, you probably can think of a few men that have responded in the same way. How about Abraham? As he was about to sacrifice his son, in Genesis 22, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Israel, as God renews his promise to him, in Genesis 46, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I'll make you into a great nation. Who's another guy? Moses. He was used. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. All these men, we know, were servants of God. One of the last guys, Isaiah, called as a messenger. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he said, here I am, send me. Ananias knew these things. He had grown up in the Jewish church, in the Jewish, not church, but the temple, knowing all these things, learning. And as he responds, here I am, Lord, in the same vein as these faithful men before. Each man was committed to obeying God, even before they knew what God was going to ask of them. Ananias was eager, willing, and ready to obey. Here I am, Lord. Wow. Just as those other men I mentioned, I don't think we're quite expecting the next word out of God's mouth. There's a pair of visions that bring together two men who've been poles apart. Now, we shouldn't fault Ananias for his next response. Ananias answered in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests, priests to bind all who call on your name. Just like I said, that'd be like Trump telling Kim Jong-un, here you go, you can come into our country, you can take all the Christians you want, take them back to North Korea with you, that's no problem. That's kind of similar to what's going on here. Uh, we wouldn't even imagine going and putting ourselves in his stead if we knew what he had done. We've heard of the histories of what he is like. But the church at Damascus knew Saul. They knew he was coming and why. This request probably appeared to be suicide for the church to go over there. Did the Lord, Lord really mean to put an end to the life of the church in Damascus, the life of Ananias, the servant of God? Annas would have had no way of knowing what Saul's conversion had been. The Lord hadn't told him yet. All he knew was this man was there. 
But the protest doesn't just show his concern. It really highlights the incredible transformation in Saul's life. Here is this man who's done all these things, and you want me to talk to him? And the Lord said to him in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for the sake of my name. Ananias' protest overruled. It didn't take long. The Lord's answer to Ananias removes all doubt from his mind even. Saul is not the same guy you once knew. Saul had become what? The Lord's chosen instrument, it says. He'll present the gospel of both the Jews and the Gentiles. He will suffer for the Lord's sake. Boy, those three aspects of what God says about Saul, they really form a summary of the rest of the book of Acts as Saul goes out and proclaims the word of God. So, in verse 17, as we keep following the story, Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. We'll keep going in a moment. But how did Ananias respond? He responded in obedience, even in the face of death, even in the face of what he thought would be an end to all that he knew there. But he was, his obedience, it was immediate. It was complete. It was trusting in the one that he knew as his Savior. Ananias went, and he put on his, his hands on Saul, the very man who was looking to lay his hands on Ananias, and not in a kind way. But Ananias called him brother. We have a man here who always calls us all brother. Brother Mel in the back there. You may have heard him greet you. Hey, brother. Hello, sister. That's how Ananias calls out as he greets Paul, Saul in this case. They're both children of God. Saul, whom Jesus Christ had appeared to and changed. Whoever Jesus has accepted is his brother, Saul now knows that Ananias has accepted him and is welcoming him into the church. It's not just, oh, brother, where art thou? No, it's a brother. I love you. I care for you. You are now one of us. Two weeks ago, we had this man, Lang Han He came and spoke about uh, what was going on in India, all the persecution, everything that's happening there. There was a man in his midst taking pictures, taking video. Just imagine that man coming the next day to their service, their small worship time, and them accepting him as brother. It's hard to imagine those things. For like, there's no way that change happens, but it does. God is great and merciful and changes lives. He could do the same, and he does the same, whether it's in India, whether it's here with men and women. Verse 18, like I already read, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. God's work is not slow, it's not late, he has a purpose. And in this case, it was both for Saul and Ananias. And as we look down the time of history, it's for us as well. It confirmed Ananias, this was God's man. And it again confirmed God's work in the life of Saul. Saul's response was obedience. His first act was to be baptized, to be counted as a believer, to be shown, look, I'm not here, I'm not here to persecute you, I'm here to submit to you, to put myself under your care. He was part of the church. He was a Christian, one of God. He was one of those who called themselves the way. Can you imagine? The fast was over for him. Sight was returned. Ananias was faithful. 
Saul was transformed. God was at work. It's just incredible to, to read the pages here and see such great change. Okay, I was, I was crying to myself when I did this before, and I thought, okay, I, I got over it. It's fine, but, but no. As you just see the changes here, that should be the change in our own lives. The story of both Ananias and Saul, they illustrate the truth of transformed lives, changed from people who are either opposed to God or those who have been following him. It, they both demand service to Christ. The very last verses there of our passage Verses uh, 19 and 20, it says, For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. <clears throat> well, as you've read through this, if you've heard what's going on, you can probably think, I probably, there's some application here somewhere. You can probably see some of the application going along. As we've gone through in youth group, we, uh, each day, we're like, what are some of the themes of this chapter? What are some of the things that stand out? Every single chapter, obedience, obedience to Christ and what he's doing, even in the midst of suffering, persecution, whatever's going on. But uh, that's just a start. Here, I've got four different aspects as we finish up. The first is a transformed life. It starts with a transformation in our lives. Sin to salvation. We have rebellion to righteousness. We have death to Christ, to alive in Christ. It's complete transformation. Not just a, a sort of half transformation and still dragging everything with you. It's a full turn. We call it repentance. In uh, the book of Thessalonians, it, it says, look at these people who have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They didn't just keep going the same way with their idols in, in tow. They turned to go the opposite direction to serve the living and true God. That's what this transformed life is. Saul didn't keep going. He didn't put another 150,000 people in prison. He didn't keep beating up the church. He turned and changed to follow this Christ whom he was persecuting. Sin to salvation, death to Christians, to alive in Christ. A transformed life. We also have to have an obedient life. These guys' obedience shone through. If they wouldn't have been obedient, can you imagine the rest of the flow of the book of Acts? This church was destroyed in Samaria. This church was destroyed in Damascus. These people, the Christians, were wiped out in this area. People continued to scatter. God's word was not heard by anyone. That's not how it could work because God is sovereign. He's the one putting these things into place, and he was at work in these men's lives. And they responded with obedience, immediate obedience, complete, continual. And it was for the glory of the Lord, not for themselves. God is working in us to provide that, own, that same obedience as we think of an obedient life. They've had a transformed life, an obedient life. What about a word-directed life? Saul's persecution and no longer affected Ananias' actions. God's word stands over and against the whims of mankind. The high priest's words and authority no longer stood as the voice of authority for Saul. The words of Christ himself were that. They were word-directed. Their lives were directed by the word of God. In these cases, these men, as God is building his church, they had the direct word of God shared to them. Even then, it was hard to obey at, in the initial point, but then they did, and they followed well with the word-directed life. They continued, as you keep looking at the, the rest of Saul's life, what a perfect man for God to have chosen. He was trained in everything of the Old Testament, one of the most trained, trained by Gamaliel, one of the uh, other Pharisees who was just known in his training. He was 
from a great town of Tarsus that was just known for all of its Jewish traditions, everything. He knew the roads, the ins and outs. He was a Roman citizen. He had all the credentials necessary to continue God's plan at this point. And his life wasn't just directed by his knowledge, what he could do. It was directed instead by the word of God, and he followed through with that. The last, after a word-directed life, is a responsive life. We can't just look at the word and keep walking the same direction. We can't just hear Christ and decide, no, that's not what I want to do. Those who have done that, it hasn't turned out well for them. Those who continue to do that, it will not turn out well for them. We have that in the book of Revelation. We see a little taste of what might happen. But these men here had a responsive life. They practiced responding to God in obedience, not just once, not just twice. Continually, they practice their obedience. They do what God has, had called them to do. We're supposed to do what God has called us to do. Not next year, but right now. I was thinking about this, practicing obedience or being, having a responsive life in light of kids. Let's say you tell your children to clean their room. You go back in a couple hours. Did you clean your room? Oh, I haven't quite got it done yet. I'm working on it. You go back a week later. Did you clean your room? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. You go back a year later. Did you clean your room? No, not quite. I'm, I'm working on it, don't you see? And then all of a sudden you go in there and the room is clean. Would you call, do you call that obedience when you uh, are talking to your children? No, God in the same way doesn't want us to just wait and wait and keep putting off what he has asked us to do. He wants us to obey, to listen to his word, to put it into practice, to have a responsive life to the things he said. Don't take that uh, scenario home and put it into practice. I see some already working on it here. <laughs> but uh, we just put Lego away for the first time in was it a year? Two years? <laughs> no, it's uh, not that bad. But it's, uh, as we think about practicing our response to God in obedience, look at his word, see what it says. There's always things for us in there, whether it's Old Testament, whether it's new, whether it's history, or whether it's direct proclamation and command. Here we have a story of what God is doing in the lives of two men. It's kind of a narrative. It doesn't have direct impetus, you do this, you do that. But as we look and see their example, oh, it's so clear we need to have a transformed life. We need to have an obedient life. We have need to have a word-directed life. We need to have a responsive life. This week, we're going to come together. We're going to celebrate our nation on the 4th of July. Just think about that time that we've, and effort that we put into that. We've got to have the right meat. We've got to have the right grill temperature. We've got to have the right friends. We've got to have the right location to see fireworks. I mean, sometimes the planning goes on for weeks in advance. We have a lot of zeal when it comes to our nation, when our, our patriotism. Lifeway Research, that's who has a lot of the hymns in our hymnal, they, uh, they found that two-thirds of the U.S. churches, including, they include America-themed patriotic songs in their service around this holiday. Not that that specifically is bad, but the survey also found that a little over half say that the congregation sometimes seems to love America more than God. The church is called to a different patriotism. We're called to worship God alone. We're not to conflate that with the worship of the country. But we're called from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That means the church itself is not a nation. But we come and we're here to proclaim Christ. We have a citizenship that's far superior to any geopolitical, any establishment here, any earthly nation. In a letter later, this man Saul writes to the Philippians. He tells the church, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul let his zeal for the nation of Israel guide him and direct him. Their traditions, their laws, their celebrations. He let that zeal and fervor direct his life. And he followed it to the nth degree, even to the death of many believers. But what we just saw 
what he had done. God did not agree. This was not where his zeal was supposed to lay, not in his nation. Saul's life was transformed from zeal for a nation to zeal to God, for the God of Scripture, a zeal for God's Son, Jesus Christ, a zeal to obey, even to the point of death. As God calls us to follow him, it's this call for this transformed life, like I said, an obedient life, a word-directed life, a responsive life. Whether this is a new change, like Saul, the very next day, he responded in these four ways. Or maybe we've been believers for years, like Ananias. Our lives should be characterized by an unearthly zeal for an obedience to our Savior. We want to love him, to learn him, to serve him, to proclaim him. Read verse 20 with me one more time. What did Saul end with as he obeys the Lord? It says that immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. We're different men and women, but do we have the same response? Can we go and proclaim, this is Jesus, the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider these things, there's such great examples of these two men, one who we'd never expect to follow after you, and yet puts his whole life before you, even more than many others, and another who's been following you for years, still lives a life of obedience and practices what you have taught in your word. God, we just ask that as we see these two different differences that are existing in the church then, even now they exist, and we ask that you would help us to have that same response of following after you, being obedient to you. God, help us to be responsive to your word day in and day out and practice these things that you've taught us. Be an encouragement to us through your spirit, be an encouragement to us through others in the body of Christ, just as Saul and Ananias were an encouragement to one another of your work in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.